Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Yeehaw! Not since Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid first rode the plains in search of trains to rob has a double act resonated with its audience quite like Tom Holland and me, Dominic Sandbrook. When they come to make the film of The Rest is History, as they surely will, Tom Holland will be played by an ageing Clint Eastwood. And by a miracle of science, they'll bring back a youthful CGI Robert Redford to take on my role. It does say, <laughs> it does say Yul Brunner. It does say Yul Brunner yeah. in the script, but I don't want to say that. Gene um, Hackman, I think. <laughs> well, the fellow, the, well, the, what I usually get is the fellow who played Tony Soprano. I can't remember what his name is. But, uh, um, James Galdafini. Whenever he appears on the screen, my wife kind of looks at me and she says, don't you feel that's a bit weird? You're just staring at yourself on the screen. Anyway, the movie will end, according to the script, with a pair of us looking out from a cave at a host of gun-toting historians. This is quality script work, isn't it? Dan Snow, their grizzled leader, and we'll smile, nod at each other, and then burst forth in a blaze of glory. This is great stuff, isn't it, Tom? I like that. Yeah. Let's, just, let's just run with this. I think well clearly. Um I mean we don't we don't write these introductions, our producer writes them. Um and they're great, as you can tell. Well, welcome to the rest of history. And today's topic for the avoidance of doubt is the Wild West. So the era of gunslinging, cattle ranching, lasso throwing, madams, bordellos, stagecoaches, the Pony Express, the Indian Wars, and the expansion of European settlers across the American continent. Tom Holland, you're a big Wild West fan. This was your idea, so you must be. I am. A, uh, well, I'm a fan of the Wild West as a myth. Um, I'm not going to pretend to any great specialist knowledge about it, but um, I've been out west. I've, yeah. I've been to Wyoming. I've been to Montana. I've visited the site of the Battle of the Little Bighorn. So um, I'm, I'm kind of I'm, I'm a fan, I guess. That, that's a long way to go, Tom. Why was what, what brought you out there? That's not an obvious destination for a classical historian. Well, I went there because I'm very interested in dinosaurs. Um, and I don't oh, want to yeah. measure too much in this because perhaps we could we could do a separate podcast on dinosaurs. But um, the 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 um, the eighteen seventies eighteen eighties was the golden age of paleontology in the Wild West. It's absolutely full of right. bone fields. So I basically went out to look at the, uh, the paleontological museums. But it's absolutely woven in with the history of the Wild West. So um, there's this place called Medicine Bow, which was yeah. um, a, a stop on the railroad just after it had you know transcontinental railroad had opened up, um, and a huge quarry um, just north of Medicine Bow is where they found the first uh, sauropod, so huge, long-tailed, long-necked dinosaur. Um, but Medicine Bow is also the place where the shootout takes place in Owen Wister's novel, The Virginian, which in a way the is great, the kind the of... great Western yeah, novel, yeah. Yeah, it's it's the foundational Western novel with, you know, the shootout, the saloon, all that kind of stuff. So um, so it kind of, it, it interwove and... and um, you know, being in in uh, in Montana and being in Wyoming, of course, I was going to go visit the site of the Battle yeah. of Little Bighorn because that's an amazing story as well. And I think that, um, in a way, characters like Custer and Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, for me, they have the resonance of Homeric heroes. I mean, they, these are these are figures who are larger than life and and who, in a sense, kind of exist beyond the dimension of history, almost. Yes, um, Homeric heroes, but but Tom. Don't you think that we're probably the last generation of whom that's true? 
I mean, I grew up in 70s Britain and the cowboy films on TV. And I remember I had a brilliant picture book, an Italian picture book translated into English called Ernest and the Wild West, where a fellow called Ernest and he meets Calamity Jane and he goes on steamships and he meets Sitting Bull and Custer and it ends at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Uh, but, but you don't really see that in sort of pop culture today to the same extent, do you? I wonder if you're 20 or if you're 10, you know, stories about, as it were, cowboys and Indians have the same resonance as they did for us and for our parents. I think that's almost certainly true. And I think that, that one of the reasons why the Wild West is so fascinating as a topic of historical inquiry is that um, the myth itself is profoundly influential as a fact of history. And in a way, it's it's a kind of lightning rod for so much that is being debated and contested in America yeah. at the moment. Because, of course, what makes it gripping and fascinating as a, a, a theatre for narrative is also what makes it kind of terrifying because this is a place of yeah. violence and aggression and um, kind of unmediated confrontation between whether it's um, Native Americans and settlers or cattle rustlers and uh, vigilantes or whatever. Um, these are all very, very contested areas. And I think one of, one of the things about the Wild West that perhaps even more than the um the, the question of uh of of race and of indigenous rights is the fact that it is very very masculine yeah it is and of course it's 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 huge in playing creating american masculinity isn't it basically yeah. the image of the and, cowboy and the sort of macho frontiersman in the classic i mean even in the, even in the virginian um the virginian is kind of tamed by uh an east coast school mom and that <laughs> that there's a very kind of, you know, the ambivalence towards the feminizing instinct yeah. runs throughout all these kind of narratives and indeed through, through, through the authentic history as well, I think. So I think that, yeah, that well, it's, it's, it's a, it's a hugely contested and I guess the word is problematic. Oh, don't go there. I didn't, I didn't do I, this I, podcast to talk about things know, being problematic. I, know, I, I knew that that would prompt you to get your, your you've triggered me, Tom. You've triggered, triggered you. <laughs> let's, let's rewind a bit and, and talk before we get into the myth, let's talk a little bit about the history. So um, you'll be delighted to know that, of course, that there's a religious element to this story. So it feels remiss not to start with this quote question from Rory Martin. He says, Tom, you love Christianity's impact on the West. You're not wrong, Rory. Um, how do you explain the influence of Manifest Destiny and the City on a Hill theology on the Western expansion of the United States? So do you want to say a little bit about that? Well, I guess that, uh, in a sense... Um the moment that English settlers land on the shores of North America, they're dealing with the Western frontier, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, you know, the moment you step onto Plymouth Rock, everything West is a, is a, is a frontier from you. Yeah. Um, and of course, those early settlers are very uh, motivated by the idea that they're living out the book of Exodus, that they've been given a promised land. Um, yeah. And that, that of course is a part of what drives people Westwards. But, Shockingly, I don't think it's the same thing. <laughs> I, I, this is very that, unusual. Uh, yeah. A- so I think one of the one of the fascinations of the West is that um, it's it's clearly essentially driven by by greed. I think. I mean, it's it's it's, it's a need for land. It's it's a need yeah. for 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 fur. I mean, you know, to begin with, it's it's the desire for trapping that leads them, you know, down these rivers, killing all the beavers. Um, 
I, I do think that, of course, religion plays a huge part in the narrative of the West. The figure of the preacher is an absolute kind of standard. And I think also yeah. that, that when you look at um, Native American responses to it, the influence of Christianity is fairly huge. So um, right at the end of, of um, the Wild West period, the kind of the tragic story of the ghost dance. The ghost where, dance, that's an amazing yeah, story. Yeah, where, where Native Americans are, are, are suffused with a kind of distorted sense of the Christian apocalyptic. Uh, you know, they have this idea, you know, they're living among the absolute ruins of their world. And yeah. the ghost dance is this kind of messianic message that if they dance, then the white men will will vanish, will be kind of buried beneath five foot of soil, and the buffalo will come back. The buffalo have been wiped out, and with the, the destruction of the buffalo, the whole Native American way of life has been destroyed. And that um, all the Native Americans who are dead will come back to life. And it's kind of terribly, you know, painfully tragic reworking of 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 the christian story but of, of course the fact that you know it does have this christian element that has been brought by the settlers show that the kind of stark division between rival sides is 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 simplistic because yeah the west is a hugely contested area and i think that that all, despite talking about the influence of christianity on the west actually in the classic period, what's telling about it is the lack of Christian morals. I mean, this is this is an era where you, you, you know, the shootout is an authentic fact of yeah World West history. Is, that really happened. It is, a, it is a world sort of steeped in violence, isn't it, from the very beginning? I mean, there's a couple of sort of stats. I know we don't really normally do stats and fact. We're, we've got a fact-free history podcast. But, um, you know, people argue about how many Indians there were at the beginning when the first sort of settlers arrived in North America. But there were probably, I mean, the, the estimates vary massively, but let's say there were between five and 10 million. But by 1890 or so, there were 250,000. So yeah. a colossal decline in just a short time. But an even more shocking figure, actually, which I only found this morning when I was swatting up for this podcast, is that in the late 18th century, there were 60 million bison in North America. And in 1889, there were 541. So, as you say, the bison, which, you know, the, the Native Americans depended on the bison. They had this kind of symbiotic relationship. And when the bison were destroyed, their world just completely fell apart. And the story of this, which, which basically is not the story that we got as children, is just the, the utter extermination. And extermination is the word. I mean, American generals talk about exterminating the Indians quite freely and their men you know behave often with appalling savagery um that that's really the sort of story that you that is still slightly obscured by the romantic myths isn't it well oddly uh, not for me actually because actually the destruction of the buffalo bison whatever you want to call them is yeah. is for me it's it's the probably the thing that, that more than anything else haunts me um when i uh when i went to to uh to what to wyoming um they they have they have them in in yellowstone national yeah. park and that more than anything else was what i wanted to see i wanted to see them moving um and the scale of the ruin the scale of of the destruction is just monstrous and the accounts that you get i mean essentially it's the railroad that opens it up isn't it because suddenly the hunt, hunters insufficient volume to get out and wipe these you know herds of millions yeah as available and you have these terrible stories of people riding along in the in the carriages with their their rifles just kind of shooting all the buffalo that they see and then yes. terrible accounts of the, of of people moving out and having to pour water on the rifles to 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 um stop because they've got so hot and then when they run out of water urinating on them oh god and the mania That's... for slaughter 
the yeah. you know the volume of hides that get sent back to the east for carpets and conveyor belts and whatever and the uh, the bone being crushed up into fertilizer and then there's nothing and there's this this terrible story of i think in the 1920s that there's a settler um farm somewhere in montana or something and one day a, a buffalo walks into town and it's like everyone in the town goes what is this it's you know they know what it is but it's it's a legend yeah. to them it's like a ghost has appeared so every the whole town comes and, and and stands around this buffalo and they just stare at it and they stare at it for about 20 minutes and they don't know what to do with it so a guy gets a gun and shoots it oh god i knew <laughs> that was going to happen that's so <laughs> depressing that's unbelievable and, I think, and of course the same thing happens to uh, to the beavers yeah you know, the, the, the 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 scale of environmental destruction that the westward expansion of the united states brings i think is is devastating. I mean, to and some extent, it focuses what happens wherever European settlers move. Yeah, um, it 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 really focuses it. It's it's a story about capitalism, isn't it? To some extent, you'd expect this from a Marxist historian like me, of course, Tom. Uh, but it's a story about the costs of capitalism. Stephen Cook has a question picking up on something you said about railroads. He says, "Did the railroad tame the Wild West?" And clearly, I, th I think the railroad played a huge part. So the sort of in some ways, the heyday of the, the Wild West. I mean, the Old West period, I suppose, it runs from, well, I mean, it runs from American independence through to the end of the 19th century. But the kind of heyday of it is the years around the Civil War and just after the Civil War, sort of 1860s, 1870s, 1880s. And that is, of course, as you said, the age of railroad expansion. So you have these kind of Union Pacific lines and so on, these colossal lines that are carrying people across the US. But it's not just, I mean, that would have happened with or without the railroads because it happened with the, the wagon trains and all these trails and and all that sort of thing and, and as you say i think profit the desire for profit is a big part of this but the question that that sort of nags at me is where we've talked about so often in this podcast about counterfactuals and inevitability and there's a great what if at the beginning of this period so in 1812 after the 1812 war when the british and the it was 1814 so they're, they're the british and the americans have had their war and they're trying to to get a peace treaty and the british wanted an indian buffer state um, in what's now the upper Midwest. And the Americans said no, because they already had their eyes on it and they'd sort of earmarked it for expansion. And I wonder if some kind of Indian state under kind of British patronage had been created, whether we'd be telling this story in the same way. But of course, no, so the Americans wouldn't countenance such a state for obvious reasons. Right. But also, I, I, I think that, um, I, I don't think that was ever possible because I don't think it was within the remit even of an American government that was willing to sign that to to agree to it. Because essentially, if you look at what happens in the 1840s, um, basically, the, the process of westward expansion runs away from the federal government. So yeah, you've got right. the, the war yeah. against, you know, you've got the war, the war against Mexico, which is incredibly brutal. It's the backdrop for Cormac McCarthy's great novel, Blood Meridian which is, yeah. you know, a terrifying portrayal of... Yeah, we of, talked about of, that in the historical fiction book, didn't we? Um, um, and and that, that's, you know, that essentially is, is organised by gangs of vigilantes. Um, and it's it's one that the United States then piggybacks onto. But also you've got the gold rush. And, yeah, 1848, you know, same year. There's no, yeah, so there's nothing that, that any federal government could do to stop people going on that gold rush. Um, no, the and, government's simply well, not powerful enough to control yeah as you say i mean it doesn't have the institutional resources it doesn't have the ma the manpower actually yeah yeah and and then of course you've got the the uh, the civil war which 
again means that vast reaches of the West essentially are beyond federal control. Yeah. So you got the, the 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 Texas Rangers who you know played a prominent role in the in in the war against Mexico and then particularly against the Comanches. They go back and fight on the side of the Confederacy, and that's when the West really becomes wild because it's an absolute free for all. There is a, the Civil War and the Wild West kind of bleed into each other, and that's one thing that you get from. Um, so people who don't know much about the Civil War, but have, or the Wild West, but have seen Dances with Wolves, will get a sense of this because Kevin Costner is his character is a Civil War veteran, and as so many of the the soldiers and indeed the scouts and the sort of these classic figures, you know, sort of the Wild Bill Hickox and the Buffalo Bill Codys. I mean, a lot of them have and been Custer, involved in the, General Custer. Yeah, Custer is a classic. Class, Custer had been a cavalry officer, hadn't he, in the Civil War, and his career had gone nowhere afterwards. He'd fallen out with President Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, former Civil War general who'd become president, and he was basically trying to revive his political career, Custer, when he went, goes off on this doomed attempt. Well, um, I... I, I I think, I mean, I think Custer actually, I mean, I mean, he, he just loves it, doesn't he? He loves the West. He, he thinks it's fun. He, he, he relishes the excitement of it all. I can't um, believe you're speaking out for Custer, Tom. I never saw this coming. Well, Custer's a terrible there's, there's man, a, really. He is a terrible man, but he's also a, a, a charismatic man because he enjoys everything that he does. And yeah. so when he when he gets told by uh, Grant that he can't go with his you know with the Seventh Cavalry, he he basically falls down on his knees before General Terry, kind of begs him, and <laughs> and that's it. And there's a, it's it's the kind of the flamboyance and the histrionics of Custer that I think people actually really respond to. He's a, he's a much loved figure among the military. I mean, he has a lot of enemies, but he's also very loved. And I think that part of of what makes Custer a success, and he is a success right the way up to, to, to Little Bighorn, is that he's the kind of the model of what every cavalryman would like to be. He's he's a creature of whim and impulse who whose reaction to a buffalo is to go off and shoot it, um, to, to seeing a, a war band of, of Indians is to charge it. Um, and essentially there's this fantastic from, from sitting bull who was not at little bighorn but was asked to say you know what 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 do people who fought at little bighorn say how did custer die and he says well the very last thing that custer did as he died was first to kill someone and then to burst out laughing oh, and that's God. how he died and that's uh, that basically you know but but there is a kind of charisma there but before we go to a break time, which I want to do in a bit, I'll just say one thing, which I think you've absolutely picked up on, which is celebrity. Custer was a celebrity. Custer took journalists with him on his, on his expeditions and he manicured his image in the papers. And actually the, this whole subject of the Wild West, one reason that it's such a great subject and it's been so glamorized and it's been so debated is that it is wrapped up from the very, you know, from the outset of the sort of, of the sort of civil warish period, the sort of heyday of the Wild West with photography. Um, with dime novels, with journalism, and with Wild West shows and all those kinds of things. So Sitting Bull, I mean, Sitting Bull appears in shows, in kind of reenactments. And actually, almost all of these people that we've talked about are in some are engaged in the media. So they're, they're either putting on shows for the public yeah. or they're, they're, they're writing in the, Custer writes yeah. stories in the papers. And that's what makes it such a great subject. Yeah. And, and the exception that proves the rule, the one celebrity from the Wild West, who who is never photographed, uh, is Crazy Horse. Yeah, who in a way is the most kind of charismatic um, figure of the lot, precisely because of that. And although he dies in a kind of squalid reservation brawl, his body then gets spirited spirited away, and nobody knows where it's buried. 
But that obviously, so he's that's the, the that's he, the legend, isn't it? That's the so he's of the it. King Arthur of of, yes. of the Wild West, and and the whole thing of, of that you know he he will come again. There's this um a, a kind of fascinating example of how of of the contest between the the, the westward imperial expansion of the United States and the reluctance of people like Crazy Horse to be memorialized is this incredible kind of statue wars that's going on in the Black Hills. You know, so you've got Mount Rushmore, obviously, yeah. with the with the, the sculptures of the four presidents. But then you've got this um this Polish sculptor who's over the course of his life trying to, to sculpt a huge statue of Crazy Horse. Oh, yeah, I've which I seen this. Would I've be the this. second largest statue in the world. Um but 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 is is hugely contested because a lot of um you know the Glagler um Lakota people say, well, you know, the whole point about Crazy Horse, he wasn't photographed, we don't know where he's buried. Um, don't yeah. do this. Such so, a good story. Great stuff. Yeah. Right. Tom, listen, it's time to uh, get off your horse and drink your milk. There's a saloon bar in town, and I fancy me three fingers of bourbon. Who writes this stuff? Anyway, we're up for a break. <laughs> we'll see you in um, a minute or two. Welcome back to The Rest is History with me, Dominic Sambrook, and Tom Holland. And a reminder that on Wednesday, the 21st of April, we will be doing this podcast live on the internet. Everybody is welcome. It's free to join, and we will be talking about assassinations, failed and successful. And we'll put out a link on Twitter a few days beforehand. And this Thursday, we are talking as if one Holland wasn't bad enough. We've got a veritable United Provinces. We've got a Netherlands. <laughs> Very on good, hands. Dominic. Very um, good. Tom's, <laughs> Tom's brother, James, who knows more about the Second World War than just about anybody is coming on on Thursday. And he will be talking about 1940, perhaps the most consequential, the most mythologized year in recent history. So that's something to look forward to. Now, Tom. Um, let's, let's get into the myth. So we've got a couple of questions here. We've got a question from Anand. What was the West really like? Can we separate fact from fiction? And that kind of tallies with Julian Hoffman's question, which is about the history of Westerns. Is it more influential than the actual history of the West? Of course, in many ways it, it is. So Tom, fact and fiction. Um, you're a great devotee of the fiction, aren't you? Of the kind of myth of the West. Yes. Um, I, I think, I think, I mean, I think in a way, yeah, I definitely just as the, the myth of King Arthur is probably more important than whatever the, you know, if it even existed, the, 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 uh, the, the bedrock of fact. Um, I, I think that the myth of the Western has been hugely influential, hasn't it? On, on it 20th has, century yeah. America and on the way that America is understood. I think it's absolutely central in America's self-image. I mean, this, there was an argument. So it, something that all people who do sort of American history, um, at, at university learn is about Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier thesis. So he, yes. he, he presented this. So where are 18- you on that? Actually, and so Alex Massey, distinguished um, journalist, actually oh, asked yes. about that. He, he said, he? Um, you know, what's the current um, state of academic thinking on that? Dominic, <laughs> what is the current state of academic thinking on that? So uh, in 1893, uh, I think it is, Frederick Jackson Turner, who's an American historian, um, presents this this paper or he writes this paper and it's... Um, he basically says the U.S. Census has declared that the frontier is closed, that America has been completely opened up. There is no Wild West anymore. Um, and he writes this this um, this paper basically saying the frontier is key to America. It's what makes America different from Europe. This is the point at which Americans are sort of straining for a sense of national identity and a sense of distinctiveness from Europe. 
And he says it's the frontier and it gives you democracy. It gives you freedom. It's very violent. It gives you self-reliance. And all these things make America different from Europe. And the frontier is key to our identity. And ever since historians have argued how much, how true this is. And of course, there's lots of historians who have disagreed with it. I actually think it, it, America clearly is a society shaped by the experience of the frontier. I mean, the American relationship with guns is only really explicable if you think about the violence of so much North American history. And of course, you know, there's more to American history than just the frontier, but I think, I think it does make sense. What do you think, Tom? And also, well, also the myth of self-sufficiency, isn't it? Uh, yeah, the idea exactly. that you can live in a log cabin. So Andrew Jackson, yeah. who we, you know, we talked about the War of 1812. That was his great victory against the British. Um, I mean, he defined himself as a, as a frontiersman. He kind of ended up in yeah. Nashville, I think, didn't he? And, um, and Lincoln, Lincoln and his log cabin. And Lincoln Again. is, the, yeah, the classic example. Um, the sort of self-made man. I think that's absolutely central to American identity and, the, and masculinity, and, which you talked about earlier on. The idea of the I mean, frontiersman, I, I, the cowboy. I mean, the cowboy yeah. is such a huge figure in American popular culture. I guess I guess that um, that that the the criticism of of the idea of there being a single frontier is that actually there are multiple frontiers and in fact there are often so many frontiers that it makes better sense really to think of it as a kind of you know a, a kind of zone of 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 exchange because as well as as Yankees and Native Americans you've got Canadians you've got French you've got Mexicans you've got people from all kinds of different traditions all kind of meeting up and yeah. i guess for much of the 19th century the what we the west is a kind of zone where all of these are meeting yeah that makes it so it is it is the kind of classic um sort of border zone the sort of melting pot isn't it so the, i mean a lot of cowboys there were black cowboys you know asian americans there were you know lots of of of, of mexicans it's it the, the sort of image of the john wayne stagecoach kind of image the searchers is not chinese laborers building the yeah. the railroads um yeah and and of course the other thing to to remember is that um the uh the native american tribes are also kind of expanding it's not like you know the the, the myth now might be that that they are rooted to the soil that they, you know, they, that they live in one particular place, but that's not the case. They also are expanding often eastwards. They're all kind of sweeping. So, I mean, I mean, the Comanches are, you know, they have this kind of huge, I mean, you could call it an empire, couldn't you? Comanche empire. There's Comanche um, people talk about the Comanche empire. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, so it's, it's a very contested area, but of course, ultimately it, because it's the United States that wins out, it's the idea of a United States frontier moving westwards, 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 and of course, eastwards from California symbolized yeah. by that joining up of the two the two railroads but um, but just on the the western genre i think what's so interesting about that is it, it is that it's not it's not completely created afterwards so the wild west show which is key in creating the romantic image of the west so the people who who do these shows the sort of buffalo bills and the and calamity jane and these kinds of characters i mean they're doing the shows at the same time as the as the wild west is still in its final stages and though it's extraordinary to think how popular those shows are so they kind of peak in 1880s 1890s they're incredibly popular in europe so among the people if you look into it the among the people who saw buffalo bill's show the kaiser saw it he was a big fan um queen victoria saw it edward the seventh saw it george the fifth saw it i mean this is massive entertainment for europe's kind of not just for the sort of common man but for Euro the european elite hitler but grew up reading cowboy stories and loving cowboy stories 
It's it's extraordinary the extent to which it was embedded in the kind of in Western imagination between, let's say, 1880 and 1920. But it, I think even before that, because I think the moment that the buffalo cleared and you have this sense of there being land up for grabs, there is a kind of just a few years where all kinds of European aristocrats are going out to the West. So you've got, um, I think, Churchill's aunt. <laughs> there's a french aristocrat who builds a chateau the the red baron's grandfather moves out there that's a very, good very, I didn't know that. very very fleetingly they and then of course you, you know it all goes wrong because you, the terrible winter all the cattle get wiped out and people start putting up barbed wire fence and everything and then you have yeah. dust bowls and stuff and, and essentially the west becomes an empty an empty space a flyover zone but um that of course is what what then it because it's empty it's possible then to project fantasy yeah. back onto it well let's just say something before we get into lots of questions a, a quick um a nice pub quiz fact for you tom do you know what the first western was the first western film it's not the one that um wyatt eep advised on no. no 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 tell me so do you want to know and give me do you want to know where it was filmed uh, probably i, I think it was I, I, I do know this it was filmed in the lake district wasn't it it was filmed in blackburn in lancashire yeah. Yes, no, I knew, yes, I did know that. Yes, I so did. So it's, it's a suddenly... film called, you can see it online, it's called Kidnapping by Indians. And it was a film by Mitchell and Kenyon, the great sort of cinema pioneers. So it's filmed in Blackburn in 1903, and it's the first Western movie. It's an, a minute long. And it and there's a sort of a woman with her baby or her, or her toddler, and a couple of Indians attack her, and then a cowboy appears and fights them off, and then that's the end of the story. Um, but that in itself tells you just how international this was right from the very beginning. You know, obviously later on you have the spaghetti westerns of Sergio Leone and so on, but um, but even at the beginning... But, you know, but, but doesn't it also, does it not also point out what, in a sense, we were talking about right at the beginning, which is that actually um, to understand the West, you have to imagine yourself back into a world where you could be kidnapped by Indians. And, yeah. you know, if you get kidnapped by the Comanche, you know it's going to be pretty horrible. You know yeah. that, you know, you're going to be buried up to your neck and have your your eyelids cut off or have your testicles cut off and stuffed in your mouth i mean it's it's all fairly unspeakable stuff and so the element of of danger of real jeopardy then of course once that sense of danger jeopardy has gone it provides a perfect stage for film i mean that it does and, and i think as well the wild west don't you think though tom that the wild west also flourishes i mean this is also the period when tolkien is writing and when kind of medievalism Ugh. is super popular. And in other words, the Wild West is, is a, is a legend created for people who live in cities who, who, who are not, you know, they, they, they don't see the great plains. They don't live in communion with nature. They don't get out, you know, they don't get out of their factories and their offices very much. And this, it's a bit like the Boy Scouts in a way, you know, Baden Powell's and, and the, and the romance of kind of King Solomon's mines and all these sort of British well, imperial adventure okay. stories. It's escapism for people for an increasingly urban population. That's what I so would say. So we've got a, Dominic, we've got a question here from Selva, uh, Durfisic, uh, who says, yes. what is it about this period that led to the creation of the mythic cowboy gunslinger? And why throughout our culture has this warrior legend become so enduring? So I think in a way you've, you've, you, you know, you've basically answered that. That's, yeah, although it also the gunslinger, you, a your point, but your point about masculinity, Tom, there's a lot of that in it, isn't there? The gunslinger, don't you think? I mean, there's a sort of the Clint Eastwood sort of stereotype or the John Wayne stereotype of this sort of taciturn, granite-jawed figure. I mean, is it a coincidence that that emerges at the time when the women's suffrage movement is taking off? You know, when well, men are seeming maybe more feminized? I don't know. So, so that's that's why I think almost the most interesting Western. 
I don't, I, and you as an American specialist, I don't know whether you'd agree with this, but, but as a kind of mirror held up to American culture would be High Noon. Mm. Because the plot of High yeah. Noon is, um, you know, there's a bandit, the bunch of bandits who are riding down on the town to, to gun down the, um, the sheriff who'd put away the, uh, the leader of the, the bandits who's been let out of prison. And he is, um, he's, Quaker bride and they're due to go off and enjoy their honeymoon, but he feels that he has to stay in the town and, and defend it. And the Quaker bride, uh, Grace Kelly, um, says, you know, if you, if, if you do this, I'm going to leave you. And her husband, the, the, the marshal, uh, played by Gary Cooper insists on saying, because he feels that that's his duty. Um, and, it's this that then makes it's basically it's Ronald Reagan's favorite film and Bill Clinton's and interesting. Yeah. You mentioned Tony Soprano. It's Tony Soprano's film. And Tony <laughs> Soprano is Tony Soprano is kind of saying, I want, you know, why aren't people strong and silent like Gary Cooper anymore? Uh, and for Reagan and Clinton, it's about overcoming, you know, because the townspeople in, in, in high noon are, are, are feckless and cowardly and, and, and won't back him. It's about doing the right thing in the face of everything. Both, um, both Hitler and Stalin loved Westerns, Tom. So that sort of there's something about that, isn't there? About the sort of the male hero, the defying, you know, defying. I guess, but there's also a sense of doom that hangs over a lot of these westerns because you know that not only is maybe is the protagonist potentially doomed, but the world is doomed as well. I think that was what gives it this sort of romantic edge, don't you think? Yes, and again, it's it's the sense that this masculine age of of, of heroism is actually threatened by yeah what is often cast as the kind of feminizing impulses of peace. So the Grace Kelly figure in, in high noon, she, she, she's kind of persuaded that, that actually it's her duty to stand by her man. Uh, you know, do not forsake me. Oh, my darling, the famous yeah. song. Um, and she ends up shooting the, the, the baddie in the back. <laughs> and then they, but, 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 but if she hadn't, then, then, you know, the marshal would be, would be shot. Um, yeah. and, it's and also the plot, that, Tom, that, of once upon a time in the West. So Sergio Leone's yeah. great film. So that the, the woman, the woman is the protagonist. Claudia Cardinale is the protagonist. There's the coming of the railroad. All the sort of old gunslingers basically end up dead. Henry Fonda and go, and she is left alone at the end. Basically, she, the, she is now the defining person who's going to sort of rule the West. The railroad has come. The old age is gone, and that that's part of I think that sort of sense of a vanished age of a lost age of chivalry. And chivalry often sort of plays a part in these, in these, in these things. There's a kind of, I think that you can map onto the stories of the old west, like High Noon and like the Searchers or Stagecoach or whatever. Stories about knights, stories about you know the hero in shining armor. And so again, to go back to Owen Wister and, and the Virginian, I mean, he was kind of overtly racist in his sense that the Anglo-Saxon race were this kind of, you know, they were the knight, original knights errant, and that in a sense, inferior races had to be cleared out of the way, which would include, you know, Mexicans as, as well yeah. as Native Americans. Um, and I think that that's another kind of element in the, the, um, the, the cultural development of the Wild West myth that makes it obviously furiously contested yeah. at the moment. Um, Let's do some questions. Let's do some questions. Do you want to pick one? Well, that's an interesting one um, from Gregory Doyle. How different were the American and Canadian experiences of the Wild West? Because, of course, Canada had a Wild West as well. Are the gunslinging sheriffs versus the unarmed Mounties both caricatures or demonstrative of fundamental differences? 
I hope you're going to answer this, Tom, because I actually know. <laughs> you got no views on that at all? <laughs> I have no views. I'm like H.A.P. Taylor on the very first question time when they asked him a question about housing. <laughs> and he said, um, I have absolutely no opinion about this at all. And so, I've always so thought, can- I've always admired him for that, but, and, and looked for an opportunity to do it. And <laughs> the first mention of Canada is my chance to do that. <laughs> well, but Canada had a, had a gold rush as well with the Claude. Yeah. And it, um, and it had a, and it had a West, it had a frontier. I mean, and it had Native Americans. Um, yes, but, uh, but but much less heavily settled. Yeah. So sitting sitting bull and crazy horse after the battle of Little Bighorn were able to retreat across the frontier, um, and and stay there. They didn't like, but they found it so boring <laughs> oh, <laughs> that, that, that they they crossed back. Basically, nothing. But but having said that, think, I, so I went to a place called Drumheller again because it yeah. has the world's best dinosaur um, museum. But it also has saloons where there are bullet holes over the mirror, carefully preserved. So th- there were the oh, occasional right. shootout. But the Klondike. Yeah. Um, that's kind of that's where the myth of the Mounties essentially comes from because it's it's a, a classic, you know. There are the bordellos and the shootouts and the uh, gold prospectors and everything happening there, and the Mounties go in and they you know they they kind of muscle it down, but also the um uh, the 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 Klondike Gold Rush is the setting for Jack London's two great um novels, The Call of the Wild and uh, White Fang, which yes. is you know a, a kind of brilliant explorations of that whole theme and they're set in canada so i think there are canadian dimensions to the wild west myth well not just canadian dimensions so andrew jay has a really good question he wants to ask about russia he says how does it compare with russian expansion under the romanov so russia expanding east both saw massive expansion they meet to a certain extent near alaska do russians have a similar sense of manifest destiny and i would say absolutely they do um, there is that, that is a, to me, a really interesting parallel. The Russians are expanding at pretty much exactly this point. So they're going east into Siberia, which is obviously not very settled, but they're also going into Central Asia. And to some extent, the Russian equivalent of the cowboys, the Cossack, you know, they're on yeah. the frontier. They're unregulated. They are armed. They are hyper masculine. Um, they are. You know, they're, they're outlaws, they're freebooters, all this sort of thing. So, you know, cowboys do have um, analogies outside the Americas. Yeah. Yep. Good stuff. Um, okay. Well, here's, are we, how much longer have we got? Are we loads of time? Okay. Well, this is a, this is a great question. Jeff Anello, what's the stickiest myth about the old West that is patently wrong? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, you, AJP tailoring again. Yeah. No, a lot of the myths are anchored in have a grain of truth though, don't they? So you mentioned bordellos. I mean, bordellos, you know, they were a thing. Um, partly to, they, they sprang up to, do, there were so many miners and, and cowboys, obviously. I suppose. But the did big all myth- the tarts have hearts? Well, <laughs> well, everybody's got a heart, Tom. Surely you know <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I've never met a tart without a heart. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. anyway, on the myth. What about cowboys? I think cowboys, are, the, the, our sense of cowboys is probably, I mean, being a cowboy was unbelievably boring. I mean, you sort of spent so much time in the saddle. And then you did your two roundups every year where you separated out the calves to be branded from the rest of the sort of herd. Um, it's very grueling. The cowboys are often young. They're kind of, they start often when they're adolescents. Then later on, some of them are Civil War veterans. But it's, and there's much less shooting. So cowboys do carry rifles sometimes. But they're, they're not the same people as the gunslingers. So often the gunslingers, who we think of as cowboys, are scouts or trappers or, you know, ex-Civil yeah. War officers, but they're not cowboys. They're different kind of people. So I would say maybe the cowboy is the big, is the big myth. And would you expand that to say that actually the idea of cowboys and Indians? 
is a myth because isn't the point about yes, cowboys yeah. that the, the the cowboys are moving um the texas longhorns or whatever it is from up into uh, wyoming and montana because the buffalo and and the indians have gone so yeah there's basically and, there isn't you know yeah so actually you're right that the cowboys the people who really kill a lot of indians in the army um yeah. Uh, or, or sort of vigilante bands, as you say, but they're not really cowboys. I mean, that's not a cowboy's job. A cowboy's not there to kind of go and kill lots of Indians. A cowboy's there to look after the, I mean, to look after the, the, the cattle, basically. So yeah, you're right. The cowboys versus Indians myth is not quite right. Yeah. So maybe that one. Um, okay. So, so perhaps another one would be the idea actually that there are goodies and baddies in the wild west. Yeah. That there are, there are people with, you know, there are entire groups of people with white hats and black hats. But that's obviously been turned on its head, hasn't it? So now the, there's no question. I was only reading this morning an essay by an American historian talking about how the moral lens has completely changed. So now Anglo-American capitalist settlers are are often painted as uniquely bad. You know, they are just the baddies. And the Indians are sort of, you know, what are the Indians doing? They're sort of taking drugs and, and communing with spirits and, and being close to nature and stuff. And, and what's sort of slightly lost from that is the fact that the, you know, Indian culture was often incredibly violent in a way that we would now find really quite, quite off-putting. Well, yes, we mentioned that the Comanche record with torture, which is really quite, quite something and terrifying. <laughs> but I guess also the, um, the, the, the what we think of as the the great plains culture is very very influenced by what europeans are bringing so yeah. I mean, it's dependent on the horse it's dependent on the rifle yeah so and i think that, again that, it's that sense of there being a stark division isn't quite true both are kind of influencing the other because actually a lot of indians spend most of their time fighting each other not fighting the white man so i mean what's one reason why they are um why they they fail to resist um, American expansion is because they you know it's the classic story of imperialism and conquest that often the the indigenous people spend as much time fighting each other or quarrelling or thinking how they can they can use the settlers to play to, against their enemies um, as much as they do um, as much as they do in kind of resisting the, the newcomers. But actually, Alex Shiphorst has this question, which is the which is the question underlying this whole subject. Can about the kill, can the killing and atrocities carried out on local native populations be categorized as genocide, or is this, or is it more nuanced? I mean, can we talk of a genocide of Native Americans, Tom? What do you think? This is such a a, a, a difficult but necessary question. I think. Um, I I think that the annihilation of the buffalo was an attempt at cultural genocide that basically pretty much worked. I, I I don't think that, you know, they didn't want to wipe out every last Native American, but that expansion westwards with the, the, the railroad and the, the army moving in coincided with a kind of a, a cod Darwinism. It's, it's when Darwinism is really kicking in as a kind of a popular idea uh, and the, it seems to to have lent to large elements of the American elites the sense that um, it was kind of you know if you like the manifest destiny yeah. of the red man to retreat and be diminished before the rise of the white man and there was definitely a kind of racial 
component to that. And um, when uh, when when General Sheridan gave the order that the buffalo should be wiped out. He was consciously said, you know, he had this kind of famous phrase that it would, um, you know, the prairies would be covered with speckled cattle and the festive cowboy. Mm. Um, you know, there was nothing festive about it. He he, he knew what he was doing. He, he well, was, General Sheridan he, he, is the man, Tom, who says the only good Indian is a dead Indian. You know, yeah. it, it's kind of hard to... It, the, the weird thing is that for so long, people would quote that as a sort of almost a, an amusing you know, swashbuckling saying, whereas now I think it's very hard. I mean, I speak as somebody who's very unwoke. I mean, I'm basically fast asleep by kind of woke standards, but, but I find it hard to, to read some of this stuff without feeling, you know, very conflicted, very moved. Um, I, 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 and I I think people, the weird thing with America, right. Is that people talk about America's original sin being the, the importation of slaves. And, and of course, America is now a society suffused with argument about the legacy of slavery and about, you know, the injustices that have been done to African-Americans. But for me that, you know, so many of these American states are, are founded on basically the extermination of their native population. I mean, I don't think you have to be terribly woke to, to see that and to see that as, as well, not something that, you know, not something that should be swept under the carpet. I mean, I think it is worth discussing. And I think that um, it's it's possible to, to to kind of be true to the the tragedy and the horror of what happened to the Native Americans, and not merely view it from the, the point of view of the twenty first century, because yeah. there were there were plenty of people who, you know, were horrified by what was happening and and stunned by it. So when um, when Sitting Bull is in his reservation and getting all kinds of grief from the guy running the reservation. The person who comes and tries to sort it out is Buffalo Bill Cody, who, as you said, you know, took Sitting Bull with him a- a- around the world. And there's this terrible story that um, that when Sitting Bull gets shot, his horse has been kind of trained to do this dance routine as part of the show. And he hears the gunshot. And as Sitting Bull is lying there bleeding to death, the horse is doing this dance routine. Oh, and God. I think that, you know, Buffalo Bill responded to the. You know, I mean, he 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 sensed the the cruelty of that and the the tragedy of it and 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 the scale of the loss. And in that sense, uh, bury my heart at wounding knee, which is you know the the famous book that essentially yeah, recalibrated. The, um, I I don't think it's in, you know I think that that is that is true to the the myth of the West in the same way that the the kind of more triumphalist westerns are as well i think that was always part of the story i think the sense of that that's you know it's it's and that's why i compared it to to homer and to um and to king arthur is that those myths are powerful because they're not just about braggadocio and 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 violence and 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 masculine glory they are also about an understanding that you can't have that without destruction and ruin and death okay well, on that note, um, farewell to my braggadocio and martial glory and to Tom's <laughs> destruction and death. Um, well, uh, now, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read out the, the jolly script ending that the producer has written, <laughs> just to cheer people up. And he's written, the Wild West has been tamed. Time to hang up our spurs and kick off our boots. This town ain't big enough for the both of us, Tom. See you next time. So if people complain this, these are one-note podcasts, they're quite wrong because we do all kinds of emotions in the space of 60 seconds. <laughs> Tom, see you next time. <laughs> Yeehaw. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.